السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد so as we mentioned uh, last week towards the end of our lesson that inshallah ta'ala in this week's uh, lesson we are going to cover the topic of discuss the life of al-imam al-tabari rahimahullah ta'ala and his manhaj, his methodology in tafsir uh, one of the reasons why um, and this is something which we wanted to do for some time like not just discuss tafsir and go into tafsir of the quran but also speak about methodology of tafsir and the importance of understanding the different approaches amongst the scholars of tafsir towards the explanation of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the interpretation of its verses. And it's important for a number of reasons. The first reason is because of uh, the debt that we owe to these great scholars of Islam, these giants upon whose shoulders we stand, right? these scholars who for many, many years um, have throughout the centuries and throughout the decades, throughout the ages, they have spent so much time and effort and travel and gathered narrations and done so much in terms of bringing together uh, the knowledge of tafsir for us. So as someone or as people who have come 1400 years later on studying tafsir, learning about tafsir, one of the things that we should do is understand the debt that we owe and we do that by learning about those scholars, learning about their, their, their struggle and their efforts and learning about the uh, contributions that they made to this noble science of tafsir. And what that does is it firstly allows us to ask Allah Azza wa Jal to have his mercy and forgiveness upon them. It's a way of showing our gratitude to Allah Azza wa Jal, a way of showing our respect and honor to those scholars who came before us. And it is also important because one of the things that we lack in, in my humble opinion, in our time is a lack of awareness of who these people are. So we hear names sometimes, but we don't really know much about them. Well, sometimes there are names that we don't even know because they're just not common names that many people are familiar with. So people like Al-Tabari. Al-Tabari is probably a name that many people have heard, but how many people actually know about him or have studied his life or even know anything more than the fact that his name is Al-Tabari and the fact that he has a book of tafsir. That extra step and the extra effort is something which as a student of knowledge it's a debt that we owe to those scholars and you can say the same in hadith when it comes to al-imam al-bukhari and muslim and those other scholars the same in fiqh when it comes to the four imams and you know likewise in other sciences and disciplines as well so that's the first thing we need to learn about these scholars the second reason why we're doing this is because of the importance of having an understanding the methodology of the scholars of tafsir so this program, QP, Quranic Progression, isn't just about learning tafsir and doing like a structured method of learning about the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is about also learning about the methodology of tafsir and usul al-tafsir. And we, last year we did some of this when we spoke about the science of qira'at and how it like kind of pertains to, uh, how it kind of like connects to the wider science of tafsir. And we spoke about a couple of other elements as well within that uh, within last year. This year we haven't had so much opportunity to do so. But inshallah ta'ala, this is something that we will do within intervals. So we don't want to stop our progress of the tafsir of the Quran, but at the same time we want to embed within it and bring in these different um, sessions in which we speak about different sciences of tafsir or different principles of tafsir. Understanding what, what is called in Arabic, manahij al-mufassirin the methodology of the scholars of tafsir, 
is something which is extremely important. Why? Because otherwise what happens is you come to, for example, Tafsir ibn Kathir, you open it and you're reading, but you don't really understand, it's confusing. Because of the way that he mentions Tafsir and his style of writing and the objectives that he's trying to meet, but because you never read, for example, his introduction, you're not familiar with his methodology, you don't really know what his objective is of the, uh, from his book, you kind of struggle sometimes with the way that he narrates tafsir. Right? And this is very common, not only in tafsir, but in many books of classical sciences. For example, if you were to go to Ibn Kathir's book, Qasasul Anbiya, the story of the prophets, it's actually a very confusing book to read because all it is is narration after narration after narration, Isra'iliyat, narrations from hadith and so on, speaking about stories. It's not ordered in any way. He doesn't have nice subtitles and headings where he says to you, now we'll speak about this prophet's birth and then his journey, then his family, then his character. He doesn't categorize it like that. What he does is he mentions a whole narration which may be two, three pages long at a time that discusses the whole life of a prophet. And then he mentions another narration that just speaks about his birth. And so the ordering of those narrations is difficult, but that's because you don't understand what he's trying to do. He's not trying to give you a nice story of the prophets. It's not a lecture that he's trying to do or some kind of seminar. What he's trying to do is what he's done, is gather the major narrations that he considers to be the most important narrations on that chapter, and he brings them together, and he mentions them in their entirety and so on. So that's the same thing when it comes to tafsir, not understanding the methodology of a scholar of tafsir, can often uh, lead to mistakes, misunderstandings, or it can lead to a lack of appreciation. You'll find, for example, that there is, uh, you know, amongst even people who are engaged in the science of tafsir, I think al-Tabari, and I don't think this is an exaggeration to say, uh, and I'm talking about like in the Western Hemisphere, uh, that the tafsir of al-Tabari is probably one of the, the least references used. It's one of the ones that most people don't go back to because they'll go to Ibn Kathir, and they'll go to some of the other ones, and they'll go to maybe Ar-Razi for the eloquence and the language and so on. But they won't really go back to At-Tabari because At-Tabari is literally narrations after narrations after narrations. And it is a difficult read. It is a difficult way of understanding tafsir when all it is is a list of 20, 30 narrations for every single verse of the Qur'an. And that's again a shame because you don't understand the methodology, you don't understand what it is that he's trying to do. So it is important to understand the life of those scholars, who they were, what they did, their efforts, the, the, their contribution to Islam, but also their methodology in terms of, for us, in, in what we're doing in tafsir. So inshallah ta'ala, we're going to start with al-Tabari because he is like the Sheikh al-Mufassirin, the Imam of the scholars of tafsir. And over time, inshallah ta'ala, we'll bring in Ibn Kathir. You know, we'll even bring in Muhammad al-Amin al-Shanqiti, rahimahullah. We'll bring in uh, Ibn Atiyah. We'll bring in other scholars as well over time, inshallah ta'ala, and look at the same thing when it comes to them as well. But it is uh, extremely important to understand his manhaj. So what we're going to do is we're kind of like going to break this up into two parts. The first part will be the life of Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, his travels, his knowledge, his students, and you know, like some of that stuff regarding him, rahimahullah. And then the second section of this, of this uh, study is his tafsir his tafsir and his methodology within the tafsir. And for example, what he, what he chooses to mention, how he mentions it, why he mentions it, and for example, even the opinions that he uses within tafsir. So Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala is the famous imam, the scholar of hadith, the scholar of tafsir, the scholar of fiqh, the scholar of history. He is a historian in his own right. 
he's a mujtahid, he's an imam, uh, you know, all of those like superlatives, all of those adjectives and descriptions that you give to the scholars of Islam, you can give to Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala. All of them relate to this great imam. Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala is from a time and a period he lived in the Abbasid times, so the Abbasid Khilafah, the Abbasid dynasty, and he's someone who is a, uh, a late contemporary of uh, Imam al-Bukhari, uh, of, of Imam Ahmad rahimahullah ta'ala. So Imam Ahmad died during the lifetime of Imam al-Tabari. So he is a contemporary in that sense. Imam Ahmad is older, uh, no doubt, but he is a contemporary in that regard. He's around that time and that era. So if you think of the great scholars who come around the time of Imam Ahmad, slightly before Imam Ahmad, who are his teachers, and then come slightly after Imam Ahmad, ta'ala. so you have the likes of Bukhari and Muslim and Shafi'i before. And that whole period of what is the third century of the Hijrah of Islam, this is the time and the place that Imam al-Tabari is born. And no doubt it's a time of giants of Islam, of scholarship. It's the time when people are starting to author in Islam. They're compiling books of hadith and in fiqh and tafsir and all of the different disciplines and sciences of Islam. This is the period of history in which people are really going to a different level of scholarship in terms of their writing and compilations and in terms of the way that the different schools and the different uh, methodologies of teaching are being spread across the Muslim world. In fiqh, you have the emergence of the four madhabs, the four imams. In hadith, you know, you have before, uh, before uh, Bukhari al-Muslim, you have the likes of Ibn Khuzayma and others, Abdul Razak and, and Ibn Abi Shayban, and those scholars have now started to author in hadith as well as Imam Ahmad, Imam Malik before him. Then likewise in tafsir, in, in uh, in, in the, the different disciplines, Musul al-Fiqh and so on. So this is the time when Islam is really, or the scholarship within Islam is really prevalent amongst the different Muslim lands. This is the era in which Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala is born. His name, starting with the basics, is Muhammad ibn Jarir. Muhammad ibn Jarir ibn Yazid al-Tabari al-Amuli. So his name is Muhammad Ibn Jarir. His father's name is Jarir. His grandfather's name is Yazid. Muhammad Ibn Jarir. Ibn Yazid al-Tabari al-Amuli. Al-Tabari al-Amuli are references to the land that he comes from and the city in which he was born. And his kunya is Abu Ja'far. Abu Ja'far. And this is by ittifaq. It is by consensus. Anyone that mentions Imam al-Tabari, because sometimes when you look at the biographies of classical scholars, you find that some scholars say, oh no, his kunya was Imam Abu Ahmad, or Abu Muhammad, or Abu Abdullah, and they have a difference of opinion, because maybe that scholar had more than one kunya by which he was known. Always, what is kunya in English again? Technonym. Technonym. <laughs> so they have like more than one that they're known by. But some scholars, no, they're only known by one, right? That's what they're known for. They became famous with that. Imam Ahmad is Abu Abdullah, right? Everyone knows he's Abu Abdullah. Doesn't have more than one. Imam Al-Tabari is known by Abu Ja'far. That's what's mentioned in his books. This is what people refer to him as, as when they refer to him by kunya. They refer to him as Abu Ja'far. He's known as Abu, um, the three main ways in which he is known <coughs> is number one by his kunya, Abu Ja'far. So if you often read, if you read his tafsir, you'll often find that it will say, Qala Abu Ja'far. 
Abu Ja'far said, meaning this is Imam Al-Tabari commentating on this verse. So he'll mention narrations, Ibn Abbas said, Mujahid said, all of those scholars. Qala Abu Ja'far and Abu Ja'far said, meaning he himself is commentating. Why? He's not writing, obviously, Abu Ja'far. He uh, dictated Tafsir Al-Tabari, right? It's a dictation, so his students are writing. So Imam Al-Tabari is commentating the writing, Qala Abu Ja'far, Abu Ja'far said, and that's his commentary in his Tafsir, right? That's the first way that he's known by, by his kunya. The second way that he is known by is by his uh, land but from which he comes, and that's the famous one, right? Imam al-Tabari, al-Tabari. Imam al-Tabari said, right? Imam al-Tabari's tafsir. And the third way that he is sometimes known by also is by his father's name, Ibn Jarir. Ibn Jarir said, or Ibn Jarir al-Tabari said, right? And so those are the three most common ways in which he's known. His first name, Muhammad, perhaps because it is such a common name, right? Everyone has, is called Muhammad. This maybe that's one of the reasons why he's not so famous by that name and it's not something which uh, he's, he's regularly referred to as. So Abu Ja'far, Ibn Jarir, and Al-Tabari. Uh, what's also interesting is he's known as Abu Ja'far uh, even though he never got married. So he has no children. So um, it's a kunya that he, it seems that he adopted for himself that he became known by, but it's not because he has children or his eldest son was named Ja'far. He has no children. He was from those scholars of Islam who never chose to get married for whatever reason. And there were many of them, right? a number of them. Uh, Sheikh uh, Abdul Fattah Abu Ghudda, rahimahullah ta'ala, the famous Syrian scholar who died not too long ago, a few decades ago. Uh, Sheikh Abdul Fattah, rahimahullah, he has a book in which he gathers the bachelor imams of the Salaf. Right? It's called Al-Ulama Al-Uzzal. This is the bachelor ulama amongst the salaf. And he mentions al-Tabari, he mentions Imam al-Nawawi, he mentions Ibn Taymiyyah, and others. Right? He mentions like 20, 30 of them that he gathers in that book. It's not a very big book, it's like a book, but it's a nice topic, right? Because to go through history and look at, they are obviously the exception to the rule. The vast majority of the scholars of Islam were married. Um, but there were notable exceptions to that rule. And from amongst those notable exceptions is Al-Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala. So Imam al-Tabari, his kunya is Abu Ja'far, but that's not because he has children or that he has a son by the name of Abu Ja'far, uh, by the name of Ja'far. He just, it is just something which he uh, chose to adopt for himself. He is known as al-Tabari because it is the land that he comes from, the land that he comes from. And Tabristan, Tabari refers to the land of Tabristan. And Tabristan is a province which today would be in uh, northern Iran, northern Iran, and the southern tip of, uh, I think, is it Turkmenistan? That comes that next to it? I think so. Uh, but basically, it borders the Caspian Sea. So the part of northern Iran that's on the Caspian Sea, and then to, if you're looking uh, eastwards, uh, I think it's Turkmenistan that comes with it in, in, in our like maps. In that time, it was just one province, and it was called Tabristan. It was a large area called Tabaristan. So he's called a Tabari because that's the area that he came from. Right? And it's a place, you know, not too far, you know, that kind of area became very well known amongst the scholars. Arrai, right, is also not too far from the area. Many scholars came from Arrai, Tirmid, where Imam Tirmidhi comes from, Naysabur, where Imam Muslim comes from, further on Bukhara, where Imam Bukhari comes from. That whole region becomes an area where you have so many scholars coming out from, right? And these are scholars who are 
therefore non-Arabs. They're not Arab scholars. They don't come from Arab heritage. They're not from Quraysh or any of those Arab tribes. They are non-Arabs. But they have, um, you know, and we have like a, an influx, a, a massive uh, opening of, or, or a massive um, appearance of scholars who are non-Arabs during that era and during that time. So Imam al-Tabri comes from that area. So he's known as al-Tabri because he comes from the province of Tabristan. And he is known as al-Amuli because he comes from the city of Amun. So Tabristan is the province, it's the region. The city that he was born in was the capital of Tabristan, the regional capital of Tabristan, and that is called Amun. So he's known as al-Amuli as well. Right? Um, but that's not like a, as common. You'll find that if you go through his biographies, but generally people don't refer to him in that way. He was born in the year 224 of the Hijrah, 224 of the Hijrah, and according to some narrations, 225 of the Hijrah. So either 224 or 225. Why is there a difference of opinion? You often find this in some, uh, amongst some of the scholars where their dates of birth and even sometimes their dates of passing away of death aren't recorded so well, they're not, they're not known. So uh, why was Imam al-Tabari's, why is his uh, year of birth unknown? One of his students actually asked him this question. He said, why? Because he said, some people ask you and you say you were born in 224 Hijri. Some people ask you and you say you were born in 225 Hijri. Why? He said, because when I was a child in my area, they didn't used to rec record people's births by year. They were recorded by incidents, right? Like we said, when we were discussing the tafsir of Surah, Al-Fil, right? The Prophet was born in the year of the elephant. What year is that exactly? You know, like they don't have a date per se, but they won't understand their years by events, by incidents, by things that take place. He said that was the same in Tabristan when I was a child. He said, so my date, my year of birth is known by a, an event that took place. But he said, when I grew up and I asked people, okay, that event took place, but which year did it take place in? Some people said to me 224, and some people said to me 225 Hijri. He said, so because I found different opinions of, about when the event took place, I don't exactly know which of those two years is more accurate. But the majority of the scholars of, 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 of uh, biography, uh, the majority of people who did a biography of Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah, I found that they stuck to 224 Hijri as being the most likely date of his birth, rahimahullah ta'ala. He grew up in a house that wasn't known for knowledge. His father wasn't a scholar, he wasn't an alim, he wasn't like one of the scholars of hadith or fiqh or tafsir or anything. He was a trader, a businessman, his father. And because he was a businessman, he had some wealth. And so Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala grew up in a household in which there was, um, you know, like they were, their, their financial situation was comfortable. And his father had, had money at a time when, as you know, for the vast majority of Muslims at that time, people were poor and poverty was the norm. But Imam al-Tabari came from a household in which there was some wealth and some money. So why did his father from a young age change or, or, or take Imam al-Tabari ta'ala towards the path of knowledge rather than encourage him to follow his own footsteps as a trader, as a businessman, as a merchant? Right? And you often find this in the, in the biographies of scholars. You often find that one pivotal moment in their life, in their biography, where, because most of these scholars begin as children in their path of knowledge. They're seven, they're eight, they're nine, they're ten. So it's either a parent, or it's usually a parent, that has that, uh, for example, that notion 
that motivation, that inspiration, call it what you may, to take their child and take them down that path of knowledge, especially, and I'm talking about here, scholars whose parents were not scholars. So obviously if the, if the father is an alim, is a well-known scholar, then he encourages his children to seek knowledge and to become scholars. That may be understandable. But where your parents are just general Muslims, they're people who pray and they do their thing, but they're not really students of knowledge. They don't have this love and passion for studying and seeking knowledge and teaching. Where does that come from? So you find that some of them just had that desire that their children should learn or that their children should serve Islam or that their children should, should do something that would bring them closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah's case, uh, and it's not also his mother, because often in those stories you will find that it's often the mother. When many times it is the mother that kind of pushes her child to study and to become a scholar. Uh, in the case of Imam al-Tabari, it's not his mother, it's his father. And it said that Imam al-Tabari's father uh, saw a dream in which he saw his son sitting in front of the Prophet and there was a, a sack of rocks or a, a bucket or a basket of stones, of pebbles. And Imam al-Tabari is sitting there and he's taking out the pebbles and he's throwing them. He's throwing them. Right? He's chucking the pebbles whilst he's sitting with the Prophet so when the father saw this dream, he went to a scholar and he asked for his interpretation. And he was told that it means that your son, if he grows up, will become a scholar of this religion. He will serve Islam and he will defend the sharia and the sunnah of the Prophet So when the father of Imam al-Tabari heard this interpretation, he started to encourage his son to learn knowledge and to seek knowledge and to start to um, learn about Islam. So it said that Imam al-Tabari, his path to knowledge began when he was very young, to the extent that at the age of seven, he had memorized the Qur'an. At the age of seven, he had memorized the Qur'an. In fact, he says, or is said about him uh, in the books of, of biography, that he had memorized the Qur'an by the age of seven. By the age of eight, he was leading people in salah. And by the age of nine, he was already seeking hadith, writing hadith, from the different scholars of hadith. In Tabristan, in his locality, in his area, he would go to those scholars and he would narrate from them, learn from them the hadith of the Prophet wasallam. So from a very young age, right, he starts to seek knowledge. And that's often the way with many of the great scholars of Islam, that their parents begin them from a very young age. Right? And this notion and concept that our children are too young to begin seeking knowledge or learning whether it's Quran or Arabic or whatever it may be from the age of even five, four, five, six, they're too young. It's not a notion that's correct. And it's not a notion that the early scholars and the early generations of Muslims had, right? This thing that your child starts learning Quran when they're eight, nine, ten, right? Or even above. That's when you start to really become serious. No, right? From a very young age, those scholars used to start learning. And their learning also, as you see from this time and time again, is always with the Quran always begins with the Qur'an. That's the first thing they used to do. Learn the Qur'an, memorize the Qur'an, get the Qur'an done before they did anything else. And yet alongside, maybe they're learning some hadith or they're doing some other stuff, but the focus at that age and in that stage is always the Qur'an. Because if you really want someone to become a student of knowledge and a well-grounded student of knowledge, they have to know the Qur'an. The Qur'an is the basic, the basis of everything. And so that, that uh, concentration, that dedication towards the Qur'an is something that you always see during that time and, and in those early generations of Muslims. And it's something which we've lost in our time, that dedication to the Qur'an, 
you know, that kind of like real effort to ensure that our children memorize the Quran or as much of the Quran as is possible. And it's a shame that today that many people feel that if their children learn you know, the last 15, 20 surahs from Juz Amma, they've done enough. Or if they memorize Juz Amma, you know what, it's fine, it's great. And yeah, it is great. You know, that's not like taking any away from anything away from that achievement. But when did we set our standards so low that it's just Juz Amma or half of Juz Amma or just the 15, 20 surahs that we read in, in our salah? That's what we want from our children in terms of their memorization of the Quran. Whereas at the beginning or in the early period of Islam, every child was more or less learning Quran. And you still have that in some communities across the world, in places like Mauritania and other places. It is like normal that children memorize the Quran. Every child goes to a madrasa and they memorize the Quran. And yet then they go on to become teachers and doctors and solicitors and taxi drivers and carpenters and wherever they become. But they've memorized the Quran. And that is an amazing achievement. It gives a child of a young age Imagine at the age of 8, 9, 10, a sense of achievement that they can conquer anything. If you can memorize the book of Allah Azza wa Jal, the Quran, by memory, at that young tender age, it gives you so much confidence. And you know that you have the ability to learn and to memorize and to conquer and to achieve goals and to overcome obstacles because that path will always be difficult and hard. And so from a young age, Imam Al-Tabari is reading and learning Quran. But not only that, he's leading people in salah, right? And that's also something important in order to give confidence to a child, in order to really motivate them, help them to lead salah, right? It's something which helps you with your Quran memorization, helps you in terms of confidence, helps you in terms of recitation, helps you in terms of just being able to lead salah. Someone who's a hafiz who's never at salah, and then at the age of 30 or 25 or 20 or 18, they're told for the first time, now you have to lead taraweeh for a month in Ramadan. They're going to freak out, right? And I know people who freak out because they're like, I've never led a salah, I haven't led maghrib, let alone the whole of Ramadan. And that's because we don't encourage people to lead salah. And yet that doesn't mean that anyone and everyone can come to the masjid and lead the salah in the masjid. But what about at home, right? Just the parents leading or praying together in jama'ah and congregation with their family, getting one of their children, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, right? Once they've reached the age where they make wudu and they understand how to pray and so on, they take it seriously, get them to lead the salah, lead maghrib, lead isha, even if they haven't memorized much. You start to build within them that confidence and that sense of responsibility and, and leadership. So Imam al-Tabari did this from a young age. And so he started to seek knowledge of hadith from a very young age. And he became well known for this. And he was known for his intelligence. He is known for his ability to memorize. He's known for his ability to retain information. And he becomes well known amongst the people of his community as someone who is a budding and an eager student of knowledge. And he became known for his memory, rahimahullah ta'ala. Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah himself says, commenting on his own journey, he says that I used to go to Muhammad ibn Ahmad al-Dulabi, who was one of the scholars who used to live in Ar-Rai. Ar-Rai is the next province over. So he's in Tabristan, Ar-Rai is the next province over. Right, still in modern-day Iran, around the area. He is in the next province over. He said that I used to go to him, to that scholar, to learn from him history. We used to read history with him, history of Islam. And he said I would finish there, and he said we would run back to Tabristan, like we were crazy people. We would run 
and we would run as fast as we could to come back to the scholar Muhammad al-Razi to study hadith with him. So he's learning from one province or he's traveling from one province to another and he's studying with these two scholars and he doesn't want to miss either. So he literally when he finishes from one lesson, he has to run as fast as he can back home in order to be study, study from the other scholar. He said that I used to do this until I, I, I wrote from that one, uh, one scholar, one sheikh, 100,000 hadith. 100,000 hadith. And that's something else that you, you see. Amongst those scholars of Islam at the beginning, their level of commitment right, and their aspiration. Right? How many people get to 100,000 hadith from one sheikh? I'm also like, I've done 100. Right? That's, that's more than enough. 1,000, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000. He does 100,000 hadith, and that's only from one teacher. Writing it down, and that's literally writing every single narration with its chain, its narrators. The Shaykh said that I heard from so-and-so, heard from so-and-so, from this companion, from the Prophet ﷺ that he said, and he's writing that down. Okay, next one. Do it again, and again, and again. Doing that 100,000 times. The discipline that it teaches you, the dedication, the aspiration, the commitment that it takes to do that is something that you see in, an, in, in, in this great Imam Rahimahullah Ta'ala. So he went to all of the scholars of his locality, which is also an extremely important point, right? And I thought this was going to be a short section. But every single point from, that you can take from the life of this Imam, as with many others, you can make it into a lesson, right? The importance of just sticking to the scholars of your locality before you travel wide and far. He didn't start off by traveling to Egypt and to Mecca and Medina and everywhere else. He started with the scholars that were around him in his province, in his region. And he studied with them and he learned from them. So he took fiqh and he took hadith and he took Quran and he took history. And then when he had exhausted the scholars of Ar-Ray and Tabristan and his province and that area and that region, then he starts to travel. And so that's what he did. He stayed there and he learned and he studied with those scholars until he had finished with them. And then he went and he continued and he started to travel for the sake of knowledge. When he first started to travel for the sake of knowledge, he went to Baghdad and then he went to Basra and then he went to Kufa and then he went to Asham and then he would go to Egypt all in a single journey, a single trip before eventually returning home to Tabristan. This was a journey that took him years. And that's also something that you find amongst that generation of scholars. Literally their commitment and their dedication to the pursuit of knowledge to the extent that they would become strangers from their homeland, travelers, for years on end, going and learning and seeking knowledge. Right? And it is such a, uh, uh, like it's, it's, it's something which is so difficult to, to speak about in terms of being able to describe the amount of commitment that must take to travel, doesn't have any money, doesn't have a business, doesn't have wealth, isn't working. He's literally traveling from place to place, finding the scholars, staying there for weeks, if not months on end, learning from them as much as he can and writing and narrating and memorizing and then moving on to the next place and then the next one and then the next one. And it is very common amongst that time scholars who would spend sometimes 5, 10, 20 years on a single journey before they would return to their homeland. Because once you're somewhere, it's just closer to go to the next place than going back home and starting over again. Right? They don't have air travel. It's easier just to continue moving from place to place and studying with those scholars. So he went to Baghdad first because he wanted to meet Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, and study with him. But before he arrived, Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, had passed away. 
Imam Ahmed died in which year? Anyone know? 241 of the Hijri. Right? So Imam Tabari, if he's 224, he's born. He's around the age of 16, 17. And now he started to travel. Right? 16, 17 year old, right? Today, 16, 17 year olds, don't trust them to go into town by themselves, right? Let alone travel the world. So he's literally like traveling. At that age, he wants to meet Imam Ahmed. He goes to Baghdad, but Imam Ahmed Taala has passed away before he arrives. But what he does do is he doesn't let that put him off, doesn't let that you know be a, oh, I didn't meet Imam Ahmed, what's the point kind of thing. He continues and he goes to the different scholars that he can find. And he can't reach Imam Ahmed, so he studies from the students of Imam Ahmed. And Imam al-Shafi passed away long before Imam Ahmed, so he's going to go to the students of Imam al-Shafi. And Imam Malik died even before Imam, Imam Malik died even before Imam al-Shafi'i, but he can go to the students of Imam Malik. And so that's what he starts to do. He goes and he finds the students of these great Imams and these great scholars and he learns from them. So in Egypt, he learns from the famous scholar Al-Rabi' Ibn Sulaiman, rahimahullah ta'ala, who died in the year 270 of the Hijri. And Imam al-Shafi'i, as we know, has two uh, schools of Islamic law. His Shafi'i madhab comprises of two schools, his old school and his new school. His old school are the opinions that he formed when he was in Baghdad, in Iraq. That's his earlier school. And his later school, which is called his new madhab, the madhab al-Jadid, is what he finally settled upon, his final uh, you know, body of views and opinions. And that's what he did when he settled in Egypt. So Rabi' ibn Sulaiman is from Egypt. He's from the students of Imam Shafi'i, from his latest, latest students. So he studies from him the madhab of Imam Shafi'i, rahimahullah ta'ala. But then when he goes to Baghdad, when he's in Baghdad, because he's in Baghdad before he goes to Egypt, he studies with Al-Hassan ibn Muhammad, Al-Za'farani, rahimahullah, who died in the year 260 of the Hijri, who's also a student of Imam al-Shafi'i, but he studied with him his old madhab. So he doesn't just think, let me just take the new madhab, but he wants to learn the old and the new, to understand the journey that Imam al-Shafi'i has been on himself, in terms of his own opinions and in terms of his own fiqh journey and journey of knowledge. This scholar al-Hassan ibn Muhammad al-Za'farani is the scholar that would read to Imam al-Shafi'i when Imam al-Shafi'i would come, to Baghdad, when he would come and he would study, and Imam Ahmed and Abu Thawr and those scholars of Baghdad would gather around Imam Shafi'i and they would study with him. The scholar who would read to him, so Imam Shafi'i can explain and commentate and so on, is this scholar Al Hassan ibn Muhammad Al Zafarani rahimahullah taala. So Imam Al Tabari meets him and he studies with him. He learns the fiqh of Imam Malik uh, from a scholar by the name of Yunus ibn Abdul A'la. And Yunus ibn Abdul A'la, who died in the year 264 of the Hijri, is a student of the student of Imam Malik. So Imam Malik has a famous student called Ibn Wahab. Ibn Wahab is one of the major students of Imam Malik. This scholar is a student. Yunus ibn Abdul A'la is a student of Ibn Wahab. And so Imam Al-Tabari studies with him as well and he learns the fiqh of Imam Malik. And then he learns the fiqh of Imam Ahmad from the students of Imam Ahmad when he goes to Baghdad. And likewise, he goes to Egypt and he goes to, and he's not just learning fiqh, he's learning hadith, and he's learning tafsir, and he's learning seerah, and he's learning usul, and he's learning qiraat, and he's learning all of those different sciences, and he's bringing them together. Okay, if you, Imam Tabari didn't uh, consider Imam Ahmed to be, you know, the same level as 
Is it true that Imam uh, Al-Tabari did not consider Imam Ahmad to be at the same level of the other scholars when it comes to, when it comes to fiqh? So one of the things that we will mention, and it's going to come towards the end of his life, is the trial that he went through towards the end of his life that leads up to his death. And one of the main reasons behind that trial that he, that he, that he is embroiled in and that big issue that he faces towards the end of his life is because of uh, people who follow the Hanbali madhab standing as opponents against him and having like a, a vendetta against Imam al-Tabari. And one of their claims, one of their bases for this is that he didn't have respect for Imam Ahmad. However, many scholars who have come later on and, and biographers of Imam al-Tabari say actually that's not the case. Not least because, as we said, he went out actually to study with Imam Ahmad. He wanted to go and meet him and study with him, but Imam Ahmad had passed away before he arrived in Baghdad. He has a book um, called, uh, Imam al-Tabari has a book called, um, it will come later on, I forget the name of it now, Ikhtilaf al-Fuqaha, The Difference of Opinion Amongst the Fuqaha. And within that book, he didn't mention Imam Ahmad. And so people had an issue with him and they said to him, why don't you mention Imam Ahmad in that, in that book? He said, this book is for the difference of opinion amongst the fuqaha. Imam Ahmad is not a faqih, he's a mujtahid. And a mujtahid is of a higher level. A mujtahid is someone who forms their own opinions. A faqih is someone who follows the madhab of someone else. Right? And Imam Al-Tabari himself later on becomes a mujtahid in his own right. He says, I didn't mention Imam Ahmad because Imam Ahmad is not, in my opinion, just a faqih. He is a mujtahid in his own right. So I think that at that time there was this difference of opinion and some of those um, comments, some of those opinions have continued, right? They're still mentioned uh, even by other scholars who narrated from earlier scholars. But that seems to be the case and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. So Imam At-Tabari is one of those amazing scholars. If you were to read his biography, you'd find that he's not just an expert in one science. He's not just a scholar of tafsir, even though that's what we know him as. But actually, he's a scholar of hadith. And if you were to look in his tafsir, his tafsir is full of narrations. It is literally just narration after narration after narration. Whether that be narrations of hadith from the Prophet ﷺ, or statements of the companions or statements of the tabi'een. So he's an illustrious scholar of of, of, of hadith. He's also a scholar of fiqh. Not only does he study with all of these scholars, but he becomes a scholar of fiqh as we will mention inshallah ta'ala also. He's a scholar of Quran, not only a tafsir, but all of the different disciplines and sciences. He's a scholar of qiraat. He's a scholar and a master of the Arabic language and grammar. And one of the things that he does in tafsir, and we'll mention this when we get onto his methodology, is how he actually criticizes the major scholars of Arabic grammar. He will say, you know, so-and-so said, and the Basri Nuhat said this, and the Kufi said this, but that doesn't make sense, and that makes sense, and that doesn't have any weight, in my opinion. So he's commenting on the opinions of who we would consider to be the great scholars of Arabic grammar as well. He's a, he's, he's a scholar, he's a historian in his own right. So he gathered all of these different disciplines and sciences, and he became a master of them, rahimahullah ta'ala. It said that he was once traveling, and on his travels, one of the governors of the provinces that he was in asked him to write a book of fiqh for him and the people there to give him a, a short, concise work of fiqh, basic fiqh. So he wrote for him a book that he called Al-Khafif, which means light, right? Which means light. Khafif is something which is light. That's what he called his book of fiqh. It's a concise book. I don't think it's, we, we have it anymore. I don't think that it's available. But it's something that he wrote for that time. 
And the governor was so happy that he gave him a gift of a thousand dinars. But he refused to accept it. He said, no, I don't want your money. He said, if you don't want my money, give it in charity. Take it and give it away in charity. He said, no. He said, I don't take any money for what I do. And so he gave it back to him, rahimahullah ta'ala. Imam al-Tabari says concerning his own journey upon knowledge, he says that I was once traveling and I went to the house of Abu Qurayb, rahimahullah ta'ala, and I was studying and learning hadith from him. And we would go with many of the other students and we would go to his house and we would learn hadith and we would write them down. So one day as we gathered outside of his door, outside of his house, all of us ready for the imam to open up his door and to invite us in, the imam came out and he said to us, all of you students who have been writing for days, you've been writing my hadith, how many of you have memorized what I've said? So you're writing it down, but how many have actually memorized and know what I have said? He said, Everyone starts looking at everyone else. Right? Everyone's looking at everyone else. And then they all looked at me, meaning Imam al-Tabari. And they said to him, do you, do you, have you memorized what he said? What he wrote, what he narrated to us? And Imam al-Tabari said, yes. So Abu Quraib, the scholar, said to him, tell me what I said to you, what I narrated. So Imam al-Tabari said, on such and such a day, this is what you narrated to us. And on such and such a day, this is what you narrated to us. And he started to tell him his narrations back to him, showing you his level of knowledge, showing you his level of memorization, rahimahullah ta'ala. He's mentioned in his biography that once when he was traveling on his journey of knowledge, he was with a number of other scholars. From amongst them is the famous scholar Ibn Khuzayma, rahimahullah, the famous scholar of hadith Ibn Khuzayma, has a compilation of hadith that he called Sahih Ibn Khuzayma. And Ibn Khuzayma is considered to be from the teachers of Al-Bukhari and Muslim. Rahimahullah. So he was with Ibn Khuzayma and a scholar by the name of Muhammad Ibn Nasr, Al-Marwazi, and Muhammad Ibn Harun, Al-Ruyani. Four of them. Right? Ibn Khuzayma, his name is Muhammad Ibn Ishaq. Other than them, them being scholars, what do they have in common? Their first name, all of them is Muhammad. Right, proving that all Muslims are called Muhammad. Right. Uh, so, here, all four scholars, on, in this case, their first name is Muhammad. <coughs> they were in Egypt, and they're traveling and they're seeking knowledge, <coughs> and all of them run out of their money. The money, the provisions that they had, they all finish. Don't have any money left, and so they're literally hungry, starving. Don't have any food. They're staying in a place that they have. That's their place, but they don't have anything to eat from. And none of them is working because they're all students. They're all learning and seeking knowledge. So they say to each other, we need to eat. So we need to ask someone to give us food, right? We need to ask from someone to give us food. But which one of us will go and ask? And no one wants to ask because it's demeaning. You know, it's kind of like putting yourself out there, having to go and ask someone to help you. None of them wants to ask. So they said, let us draw lots. Restore lots, whoever pulls the shortest lot will have to go and ask for food. So they draw lots, and the lot came out of Ibn Khuzayma. Ibn Khuzayma, the scholar, Muhammad ibn Ishaq, rahimahullah ta'ala, his lot is drawn. He has to go and ask. He says to them, before I go and ask, let me go and pray. Let me go and read salah. I want to pray nafil, and then I will go and ask. They said, okay. So he prays, and as he finishes praying, someone knocks on their door. And they open the door and they find the representative of the governor of Egypt. And he says, is there someone here by the name of Muhammad ibn Jarir al-Tabari? 
says, yeah, gives him 50 dinars. Is there another one by Muhammad ibn Ishaq? Yeah, 50 dinars. The other one, Muhammad, yes, 50. The other one, Muhammad, 50. Gives them all 50 dinars. He says to them, they ask him, why are you giving us 50 dinars? Where, where did this come from? Right? They don't know him. They're not, you know, he's not aware of their situation. Doesn't know what's going on. Where does it come from? He says that the governor saw a dream last night that this house within it, the Muhammads are complaining of poverty. They're hungry. He saw a dream. And so he asked his representative to go to this house with money to help those people. And so Allah saved them from having to ask from others and to seek the help from others. And it is from the karamat, it is from the ways in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showers his blessings and his favors and his grace upon those people that are close to him subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Imam ibn Jarir al-Tabari lives at this time. Not only is he a student to many famous scholars, he is a contemporary to a number of famous scholars, not least of them Ibn Khuzayma rahimahullah ta'ala. Al-Imam al-Tabari has many books that he wrote. He is one of those scholars that is truly amazing in the sense of how many books he authored, how many books he wrote. And his books, you know, many of them, like his famous books, are not just 100 pages or one volume or two volumes. They are each one of them like encyclopedias, like his tafsir. They are literally that big. And he's someone who's, who's written so many works, right? So when we think about the scholars who wrote and wrote and wrote, you have people like Ibn Qayyim and people like, you know, An-Nawawi and people who within Ibn Jawzi, people within their short space of time, they authored so much. These scholars came much later. An-Nawawi, Ibn Jawzi, Ibn Taymiyyah, all of these scholars come many, many years later. From, the, from that period of time, Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala is one of those standout scholars from that generation. Imam al-Bukhari had many books, but his books are kind of hadith books, right? Imam Ahmad has books, but his books are hadith books. A scholar that writes in history, in fiqh, in hadith, in tafsir, in all of those different disciplines that early on is something which you don't find many examples of. And so Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala is one such person. Obviously his most famous book is his tafsir, which you know, according to some editions, depending on the edition that you buy, can be 20 to 30 volumes, just his tafsir of the Quran. He has another book, which is his book in history, which is called Tariq al-Muluk wa Rusul, the history of kingdoms and prophets or messengers. And it's more famously known as Tariq al-Tabari, Tabari's Tariq, his history. And it is, uh, I think the, common, the modern edition is 11 volumes. And that's basically him starting within his, within his book of history. He begins with the creation of the pen, which is the first thing that Allah Azza wa created, as mentioned in the hadith. And he goes all the way up to the year 300 of the Hijri, which is basically around his time. So he literally does a book of history. And this is before, right? This is like before Ibn Kathir will come and do Al-Bidayah and Nihaya. And before other people will come like, uh, you know, Khatib al-Baghdad, do Tariq Baghdad and so on. These scholars come later on. Imam al-Tabari is someone who's probably one of the first to write such a comprehensive book of history uh, from the very beginning to at least up until his time. Yeah, that's a good question. What is the first creation of Allah Azza wa Jal? Was it his pen or was it the, the arsh? I think he bases on the hadith of the Prophet uh, That seems to be what he's doing. He's basing the hadith. Yeah, that the hadith 
Yeah, but does that mean that it was created? For, that's the difference of opinion amongst the scholars. Right? Um, but anyway, he begins with the pen anyway, and, <laughs> and he ends in the year 300. Right. Has he been translated into English? That's completed? Wow, okay, so Naveed's saying that it's 50 volumes in English. Have you seen that? Where is that? I haven't come across that. That must be very expensive, man. So anyone that has 400 pounds to spare, Imam Tabari's <laughs> donate to QP. What's, what's QP? What do you donate to QP? Me? <laughs> there's no, there's no like thing there called QP. You can't just donate to a, donate to the website. So anyway, um, but I'm impressed. I'm impressed that it's been translated. Imam Tabari, like that's like. Uh, anyway, while uh, while we check this out and verify, uh, Navs. History of a Tabari, that one there. Two thousand dollars? That's not four hundred pounds. The pounds never been that strong, man. <laughs> anyway, slightly going off topic. Yeah, man. One book is twenty-five pounds, and it's fifty volumes. Okay, so anyway, I mean, that's interesting. I, I wasn't aware that it's been translated. I mean, anyway, so there you go. So it is apparently available in the English language on Amazon and other retailers. So anyway, the point being here that Imam al-Tabari wrote this amazing book in, in, in Tariq, in history, and it is literally narrations again, right? That's his style and his commentary within that. He has many other books as well. Um, one of his um, books that he didn't finish, he passed away, rahimahullah ta'ala, before he finished, is a book that he calls Tahdeeb al-Athar. And what he did is, it's a book of narrations of hadith that he considers to be authentic. Um, and he mentions, you know, the, he comments on the hadith and the chain of narrators and, and, and whatever. But it's a book that he did within, he basically gathered all of the hadith of one companion together. So all of the hadith of Abu Bakr together, then all of the hadith of Umar together, then all of the hadith like a musnad. Um, but it's much more extensive than what you find within uh, amongst other books of the same kind of like ilk. Um, because he'll go very deep into the different sentence and very deep into this ilal and understanding the hadith and so on. And he only did the four khulafa and the family of the Prophet Sallallahu al-Bayt and he was on Ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhumah who's obviously also from the relatives of the Prophet Sallallahu and he passed away there. I think it's al-Dhahabi or Khatib al-Baghdadi, one of them said, that had Al-Tabari finished this book, it would have been something that no one has seen the like of. Because he had, it was already so extensive and he'd only done like 20, 30 companions. Imagine, had he finished, you know, he didn't even get to Abu Huraira and Aisha and, and all of like the rest of them. So when he, that's how big it was going to be, but he passed away, rahimahullah ta'ala, before he was able to finish it. And he has also other books um, in Aqeedah. He has a book as well that he mentions his Aqeedah, that his Aqeedah is the Aqeedah of Sunnah, and he like, you know, speaks about that, it's called Sarih al-Sunnah. Um, and he has other books as well that he wrote and he authored. He has many books. Not all of them are available. Not all of them have lasted and, and survived till our time. Uh, but it, they are mentioned uh, either in his biography by scholars of his time or after his time, or they are mentioned by himself. Sometimes in his works, he will allude to another book that he is writing and that he is compiling, Rahimahullah Ta'ala.
from his most famous students, he had many students, from his most famous of them, or the more, more well-known ones, is Imam al-Tabarani, rahimahullah ta'ala. Imam al-Tabarani, who is the famous, also compiler of hadith, uh, he has the three ma'ajil, mu'jam, al-kabir, al-awsat, al-saghir, mu'jam al-Tabarani, as is famously known as, Imam al-Tabarani, who died in the year 360 Hijri, is from the students of Imam al-Tabari. Abdullah ibn Adi al-Jurjani, who's the author of the book, Al-Kamil fil-Jarh wa Ta'deed, from the scholars of hadith of that era, died in the year 365 Hijri. But from his most famous students is the famous scholar of Quran, Ibn Mujahid, who died in the year 324 of the Hijri. And Ibn Mujahid is the, uh, when we discussed the Qira'at last year, first year of QP, and we were going through the Qira'at, he is one of the pioneers of the sciences of Qira'at. He's one of the first people to compile it together as a science. And it said that he was the first one to identify the seven mutawatir qira'at and bring them together in a single work. His name is Ibn Mujahid. And Ibn Mujahid is from the students of Imam al-Tabari, which shows you that Imam al-Tabari is an a, a expert also in qira'at. Right? This is his student that would go on to write that work, rahimahullah ta'ala. And Imam al-Dhahabi, rahimahullah ta'ala, said concerning Imam al-Tabari, he was trustworthy, honest, a hafil, a memorizer, a leader in tafsir, an imam in fiqh, and in its points of consensus and points of difference of opinion, and a scholar in history, and a scholar in qira'at, and in the language of Arabic. Al-Imam al-Isfarayini said, concerning his tafsir, right, these are just some of the statements that the scholars said concerning him. Al-Imam al-Isfarayini said concerning his tafsir, tafsir al-Tabari, he said if a person had to travel to China, to get that book, it would be worth it. If they had to travel all the way to China to get that book, it would be worth it. Al-Khatib al-Baghdadi, rahimahullah ta'ala, said, Al-Imam ibn al-Jarir is one of the great imams of Islam who gathered all of the different sciences and was unique in his time. Not only did he memorize the book of Allah, he was well-versed in its meanings. And a faqih, well-known, well-versed in its rulings. Someone who knew the sunnah and the hadith it's authentic and it's weak and all of the different statements of the scholars and the tabi'een and those who came after them in all of the different issues as well as being an expert in the history of people and in the history of the different kingdoms and the different times. His contemporary Ibn Khuzayma rahimahullah ta'ala used to say about al-Tabari, I don't know anyone on the face of the earth more knowledgeable than Imam al-Tabari. That's Ibn Khuzayma who himself is a, a great scholar. And once one of his students, Ibn Khuzayma's students, traveled to Imam al-Tabari's land. And Ibn Khuzayma said to him, go and study with Imam al-Tabari and the other scholars. But when he came, Imam al-Tabari was going through his trial towards the end of his life. So he didn't study with him. But he studied with many other scholars of that area. And then he returned to Ibn Khuzayma. Ibn Khuzayma asked him, did you go to al-Tabari? He said, no. He said, but I went to everyone else. He said that I would wish that you had left everyone else and gone to al-Tabari. Right, that's how much he used to see him in terms of his knowledge. Rahimahullah ta'ala, and Imam al-Nawawi, rahimahullah ta'ala said, uh, why Imam al-Nawawi? Because Imam al-Tabari, as we will mention, is a, a scholar in his own right. He has his own fiqh, his own madhab. He doesn't follow anyone. But what he used to at the beginning, he was known as a Shafi'i scholar. He was known as a Shafi'i scholar because that's what he primarily studied, the old madhab and the new madhab, as we said. 
So at the beginning, he used to, his fatwa and his fiqh was the Shafi'i fiqh. But then it developed more and he became his own, uh, in his own independent fiqh expert, if you like, or fiqh school. He developed his own methodology of fiqh. But he's often mentioned, some, or he is sometimes mentioned. If you look at the famous scholars of the Shafi'i madhab, sometimes he will be mentioned and sometimes he won't. Imam al-Nawawi said, Ibn Jarir is an independent imam and his opinions are not the opinions of our madhab, meaning the Shafi'i madhab. Right? Meaning that he has his own madhab, rahimahullahu ta'ala. He was uh, known, rahimahullah ta'ala, as someone who is described as someone who wasn't concerned with the dunya or with wealth or with money. Even his father, even though his father had wealth and money that he would send to him to help him with his studies, if it sometimes and sometimes would happen that money would run out and the next you know, like amount wouldn't reach him in time, he would sell his possessions in order to be able to continue to study. He said on one extent that I had to rip off the sleeves of my clothing and sell it in order for me to get something for some food, rahimahullah ta'ala. He was known for his humbleness and humility. When other scholars would disagree with him or he would have differences of opinions amongst other scholars, his students say that we would ask him about those scholars and he would only praise them and speak good of them and speak about their religiosity and uh, how they were. One of his contemporaries, Abdul Aziz ibn Muhammad, I think he's also one of his students, he said, and Imam Abu Ja'far al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala was amazing in his etiquettes, in his character, in his humility, in his humbleness, rahimahullah ta'ala, and in his knowledge. And he was someone who would sit with his friends and he would spend time with them. He said he would even joke with them. He said that if someone gave him a gift, he would only accept that gift if he was able to give something back in return. And if he was unable to pay someone's generosity back with generosity, he would excuse himself from accepting that gift and he would say that I can't do this. It said that one of the scholars or one of the leaders of his time sent him 3,000 dinars as a gift, right? Dinars are gold coins. It's an extreme you know, amount of wealth, 3,000 dinars. And Imam al-Tabari sent it back and he apologized and he said that I don't have anything that I can give to you in terms of returning, uh, you know, showing you my gratitude or returning what you've given to me. I don't have anything that I can repay you with. The governor said to him that I don't want to be repaid. I don't, it's a gift for you. I don't want anything back. Imam al-Tabari said, that which you give, the Prophet Sallallahu used to always give something back in return. So when I cannot give it back in return, I apologize and I can't do so. His students mentioned that he would pray dhuhr and then he would write. He would write. It is said that he used to write 40 pages a day. 40 pages a day. So he would spend from dhuhr till asr reading. Uh, sorry, writing. From asr till maghrib, he would spend with his close students that you would read to him or he would read to them and then from Maghrib to Isha he would spend teaching in his general lessons of fiqh and hadith and so on as we said his fiqh is you know he has his own madhab right and that's something which you find in that generation amongst those scholars one of the common misconceptions and misunderstandings is that there were only ever four madhabs which are the four madhabs that we have today Malik, Shafi'i, Ahmad, Abu Hanifa those are the only four madhabs. Actually, no. There were many other madhabs. Imam Hassan al-Basri has his own madhab. Huh? The Zahiri madhab, right? But that still kind of exists to some form. Um, but like all of those scholars, 
ابن سيرين عزيزون مذهب الزهري عزيزون مذهب الحسن البصري الليث إسحاق بن راهوي عبد الله بن مبارك إمام الطبري أبو ثور all of them not أبو ثور but all of those scholars الليث بن سعد all of those scholars have their own مذهب because they were all مجتهدين right and they're all contemporaries of those other scholars so they're not studying Imam al-Shafi'i's madhab if they're a contemporary to Imam al-Shafi'i. Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah came after Al-Hasan al-Basri and Sa'id ibn Jubayr and Sa'id ibn Musayyib. So whose madhab were they following? They had their own body of opinion in terms of fiqh and their own methodology. What happened over time is that they were lost. So the issue isn't that there wasn't anything except the four madhabs. No, there were many more. But over time they were lost. The students didn't do enough to preserve the madhab, to spread those teachings, to, you know, Allah didn't will for them to become well-known and well-spread madhabs. They were lost over time. It's said that Imam Shafi'i said about Al-Layth ibn Sa'd, rahimahullah ta'ala, min Malik. In my view, he is more knowledgeable than Imam Malik. But his students didn't preserve his knowledge. And that's what happened. Often, or it lasts a generation. Imam Al-Tabri said that some of his students preserved his fiqh and they used to teach it, but over time it then gets lost and the other four madhabs for different reasons, political, you know, whatever, geographical, whatever reasons, those are the four madhabs that become dominant and spread across the world. But he has his own madhab, rahimahullahu ta'ala. Shall we stop here? Or shall we like, I have like some, I think what we'll do is we'll stop, uh, Yeah, let's stop here, inshallah ta'ala, because uh, I have a lot more to, to go on in terms of his life. But inshallah ta'ala, another 15-20 minutes, and then we'll, uh, next week, inshallah ta'ala, we can go on to his methodology in tafsir. And I hope that, inshallah, next week we can finish his methodology so that we can, like, um, we can continue. Any questions online? No? Okay. Any questions here? Okay. So I hope, you know, inshallah ta'ala, at least you appreciate who he was now. When we say Al-Tabari, it's not just a name anymore. Al-Tabari, but now you understand who he was and what he did and what he achieved and the lengths that he went to and why we, you know, we are so indebted to him after Allah Azza wa Jal for the efforts and the contribution that he made bi ta'ala. Okay, Jazakumullah khair inshallah ta'ala and we'll see you guys next week. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.